0: Welcome back to Breakdown. We're giving you another bonus episode this week, an interview with two of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's sharpest voices, Metro columnist Bill Torpy and political columnist Patricia Murphy. Like us, they've been keeping track of the Fulton County special purpose grand jury that's investigating former President Donald Trump and his allies for what happened here after the 2020 presidential election. They know Atlanta, state, and national political dynamics like no other. And they have some interesting observations. It's a good time for you to hear this great conversation because the special purpose grand jury is now taking a month off and returning after the November eighth elections. I'm Bill Rankin, the HAC's legal affairs reporter.
1: And I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. But first, we want to bring you up to speed on two intriguing developments in the case. Prosecutors are now seeking to obtain search warrants based on sensitive information acquired during the investigation. And prosecutors have also moved to have the two lawyers representing nearly a dozen fake Republican electors dismissed from the case. This is Breakdown, The Trump Grand Jury, Episode 14, Breakdown Bonus, Torpy and Murphy, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
0: We don't know much more other than prosecutors want them. The filing, signed by Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney, says that any warrants, affidavits, non-disclosure orders, or related documents will be sealed from the public unless otherwise ordered. Quote, the court finds that disclosure of this information could compromise the investigation by, among other things, causing flight from prosecution, destruction of or tampering with evidence, and intimidation of potential witnesses. Some disclosures could also substantially risk the safety and well-being of the individuals involved in the investigation, including, but not limited to, witnesses, subjects, law enforcement officers, and officers of the court. We don't know who the DA's office wants to search or what they're seeking out, but we'll certainly keep our eyes peeled. And yes, it's getting quite serious here. We now have a judge expressing concern about witness tampering and the safety of those involved in the investigation.
1: Justice Juicy is the latest filing from the DA's office. It seeks to disqualify attorneys Holly Pearson and Kimberly Burroughs-Debro from the investigation. You've heard their names before. They're representing 11 of the 16 fake Republican electors in Georgia who were all sent target letters in July. They fought unsuccessfully to have their clients' subpoenas quashed, And they joined State Senator Burt Jones this summer as he sought to have Fulton DA Fonnie Willis disqualified from investigating him. McBurney ordered the investigators to come testify, which, as far as we know, occurred.
0: Fulton prosecutors are taking issue with the fact that Pearson and DeBro are representing 11 clients simultaneously in this investigation. They say it's, quote, rife with serious ethical problems and violates the rules of professional conduct for lawyers.
1: So why exactly does it matter to the DA's office if 11 of their targets have the same legal representation? There are a few different reasons.
4: It's just really messy, and courts hate it, and courts pretty routinely grant these motions.
1: That's Atlanta attorney Andrew Fleischman, who's been following the special grand jury probe.
4: Having 11 people means that, like, let's say they go to trial, they get convicted, and somebody says, well, listen, my my lawyer didn't... didn't talk to me about any deals, he didn't do any of the things that would make good, an appellate court could come reverse that result. And because of that risk, courts often allow district attorneys to move to disqualify counsel for representing a bunch of people. And it's a total disqualification, right? Because they can't stay on for just one person because they've learned a bunch of stuff about the other people. And they can't use that knowledge against former clients.
0: That, of course, would be a giant headache for prosecutors. But there's another big reason why the DA's office would want to break up the electors' attorneys.
1: Immunity or plea deals. Not all defendants are created equal. There are big fish and there are small fish, sometimes with diverging sets of interests. And often prosecutors will try and cut deals with the small fish, give them immunity or a lesser sentence in exchange for their testimony and cooperation, so they can try and get just enough evidence to charge the big fish. Picking off the little guys, though, is awfully hard to do if many of the small and big fish have the same attorneys.
4: Let's say that Fulton County goes to one person and says, I will offer you a million dollars and a pony to testify against everybody else. That is a great deal. But would this lawyer be able to advise their client to take that deal without a huge conflict of interest for the other clients? Because she'd be telling her client to hurt everybody else, even though that is absolutely in that client's best interest.
0: Fleischman notes that it's worth digging around to figure out who's paying for the group's legal fees. That's a giant clue about whose interests the targets, or their lawyers, will act upon. So we did just that.
1: Federal records show that the Georgia Republican Party paid Pearson's law practice more than $25,000 in early July, only a few days after the electors were sent target letters. DeBro's firm was paid just shy of $10,000. The records don't specify whether the payments were for their legal work with the fake electors, but it's hard not to connect the dots. Remember, several of the 11 electors Pearson and Debro represent are or were senior party officials, including Chairman David Schaefer and several of his deputies.
0: So why is it harder for prosecutors to cut deals with a person represented by lawyers defending other related parties? We asked former federal prosecutor and Georgia State University law professor Karen Morrison to explain.
5: It's a peer pressure thing. You know, you keep everybody together. You know, there's not going to be anybody making any side deals. You know, I mean, you keep control of the case that way, or a certain amount of control, you know, to the extent you can. It just makes it hard to do anything, I think, if everybody's all tied up with one lawyer. It feels, I think, like all those clients are going to kind of move in lockstep and – Prosecutors don't want to deal with that. (laughs) They want to be able to, you know, they want to be able to streamline the case. They want to be able to get rid of the people that are not going to be helpful, like plead them out, get rid of them. They want to focus on the big fish and they want to get as much help from the smaller fish as they can.
1: We asked Morrison if she thought if it's possible Pearson and Debro could be acting in the best interest of the person paying the bills and not necessarily in the best interest of those 11 small fish they're representing.
5: Yeah, that's obviously a concern. I mean, I think that there's an there's a absolutely legitimate concern um, for some of these 11 clients that they're not getting the best representation because it's not specifically tailored to them.
1: To no surprise, Pearson and DeBro vow to fight back against the prosecutor's motion. In a joint statement, they say any suggestion that they violated their professional duties is, quote, false and defamatory. We are disappointed to see the district attorney and her office actively trying to separate citizens from their chosen counsel. Allegations of conflict here are particularly rich, given that the court has already determined that the DA herself had a disqualifying conflict of interest in this case.
0: They're, of course, referring to DA Fonnie Willis's biggest misstep in the investigation so far, the fundraiser she held for Burt Jones' Democratic opponent for Lieutenant Governor, Charlie Bailey, That led to Judge McBurney disqualifying the Fulton DA's office from investigating Jones.
1: The two lawyers say their clients have, quote, followed the letter and spirit of the law. They've cited as precedent the appointment of a contingent slate of Democratic electors in Hawaii during a recount following the 1960 presidential election. They said, quote, Both the U.S. Supreme Court and the Georgia Supreme Court recognize that there is no actual or potential conflict in representing multiple individuals united in their innocence, whose defenses against false allegations of wrongdoing are aligned.
0: Yale and Georgetown law professor Steve Bright pointed us to a 1988 Supreme Court decision that appears to give Judge McBurney the authority to require the 11 fake electors to get new counsel. In that case, Mark Eric Wheat, charged in a marijuana distribution conspiracy, wanted to be represented by a lawyer who also represented Wheat's two co-defendants. Prosecutors objected and argued if a co-defendant struck a plea deal, he could testify against Wheat. The trial judge agreed and did not allow the attorney to represent all three men.
1: In a 5-4 decision, the high court upheld the trial judge's decision. It ruled that judges must be given, quote, substantial and broad latitude, in refusing defendants to waive both an actual conflict of interest as well as a potential conflict.
0: During a prior hearing, the two lawyers representing the 11 electors told Judge McBurney their clients would invoke their Fifth Amendment right not to testify before the special purpose grand jury to the point of not even giving their names. Law professor Steve Bright makes note of this and then refers to what one of our nation's founding fathers said when signing the Declaration of Independence.
3: From what we know, it looks like all of the 11 have taken the Fifth Amendment and have not testified. This is very frustrating to the district attorney, who would like probably to cut deals with some of them, offer them immunity, perhaps, or dismissal of charges in exchange for uh, testimony. On the other hand, uh, the defendants have decided to follow the example of uh, Benjamin Franklin. We either hang together or we hang separately. So there's value in a common defense.
1: All right, now that you're up to date, it's time for the fun stuff. We're joined by two of the AJC's shrewdest voices to provide a little more perspective to this case. Patricia and Bill, welcome to Breakdown. Uh, we'll start by introducing Patricia Murphy, who's at the AJC's political columnist. In addition to authoring her two weekly columns, she quarterbacks our agenda-setting morning newsletter, The Jolt, and co-hosts our sister podcast, Politically Georgia. Before coming to the AJC, she was a nationally syndicated political columnist at my former employer, CQ Roll Call in DC, and was Capitol Hill Bureau Chief for Politics Daily. We're so happy to have you on the show, Patricia.
6: Hi, Tamar. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so I'm thrilled to join y'all today.
0: And uh, Bill Torpy has been working at the AJC almost as long as I have, which is a long time. He's a Southsider from Chicago. Bill and I have covered many stories and cases together, had a lot of fun together. Maybe the most uh, important case or the biggest case we had was the murder trial against former NFL superstar, Ray Lewis. Um, It was a great trial. Lewis ended up pleading guilty to a misdemeanor. His two co-defendants were acquitted. And Lewis won the MVP in the next year's Super Bowl game. After many years of being a reporter, Bill was allowed to pursue his dream and be the Metro columnist for the AJC, just like he uh, has always wanted to do. And we're glad to have you.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure being here.
1: Great. Well, we wanted to do this calmness roundtable because cumulatively, the two of you have spent decades watching Atlanta state national politics. And we wanted to get your takes on the state of the Trump investigation here in Fulton County and where things might be going. So Patricia, I wanted to start with you and Bill will give you the same question after she's done. It's been more than a year and a half since Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis launched her investigation, five months since this special grand jury was seated to help her. What are your impressions of where we are now Is it unfolding the way that you thought it would? And is anything really surprising you as we move forward?
6: Yeah, so I think that it has been extremely meticulous. It has looked to me from the outside looking in like a series of concentric circles that Fonnie Willis and her team are drawing around President Trump, in the bullseye, just getting a little bit closer, a little bit closer, a little bit closer to Donald Trump. I've been really surprised at the number of subpoenas that she's been able to execute and have people show up on the courthouse steps, including Rudy Giuliani. I was really not expecting that all of these subpoenas uh, would be both issued and required to be responded to. And I think also that it seems to be heading very deliberately straight toward President Trump, we were wondering initially, could this be just about the people around him? Could this just be about people here in Georgia? It seems to be all of the above. I've also been surprised at the number of targets. It's much more wide ranging than I was expecting. And if I had to point to one thing that Willis has done that surprised me, it was holding a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey in the middle of all of this, who, of course, is the democratic opponent of one of the former targets, uh, state Senator Burke Jones. He's running for Lieutenant governor. And that seems to me to be an unusual misstep high profile as well from Bonnie Willis, who has really played this pretty straight. And I think very strategically without exception.
1: Well, Bill, same question to you too. What are your impressions of where we are now? And is this unfolding in the way you thought it would?
6: Well,
3: uh, I, I believe it is. Uh, I, Came in thinking that it would have to go for the president because, right, it all started with the phone call. Uh, It's been a slow march to get there. But as your question was, were we surprised that it would go at Trump? I think not. I mean, he's the main course, right? Everyone else is kind of like the potatoes and the rolls and and the glazed carrots. And he's the roast beef. So there we go.
6: Can I change my answer and just say that instead? <laughs> that was very well said. <laughs> um, Patricia, Judge Robert McBurney,
1: who's overseeing the, the grand jury, has been going to great lengths to try and insulate this investigation from politics. But of course, I, you know, as a former political reporter myself, I, I think it's an almost impossible endeavor. Can you weigh in
6: here? Yeah, there's no way to keep this out of politics because it's only about politics and power and overturning the last election. And it's played out simultaneously to the next election in 2022. And I think we all see it having major effects on the election following that in 2024. So there is simply no way to make this um, outside of the political realm. I think he's tried to insulate it from looking like it is driven solely by partisan politics, and has looked to sort of insulate his own actions and the actions of the prosecutors, and again, push back the actions of the prosecutors, including Fonnie Willis, if it starts to get into the realm of looking partisan, even more than being political. And so, but there's there's just no way to keep it out of politics, because that's the only thing it's about.
0: We have a general election coming up in a few weeks that you've been covering closely, Is this being discussed at all on the campaign trail? And how is it playing out?
6: Yeah, so it's being used certainly against Republicans, especially Burt Jones. And so we talked a little bit about Burt Jones and his opponent, Charlie Bailey. Charlie Bailey has made Jones' role as a fake elector, really the central argument against Jones on the campaign trail and saying that this man tried to undermine democracy, did undermine democracy, and has no business being a part of the government in the future. So he's absolutely using it. I think Democrats continue to use it as a rallying cry, not the court case itself, but just Everything that's happened since 2020 in some of our most recent AJC polling, threats to democracy ranked number two on the list of concerns for Georgians right behind the economy and jobs and inflation. And so it's it's in the ether. You can just feel it. I think the political effects though, really feel like they would have a bigger effect on the 2024 presidential race. It's feeling like it's making Donald Trump just seem like he has more and more and more baggage, every because this thing is just playing out over and over and over. But uh, I think that's the real race it would actually have an effect on.
1: Torpy, one of the big kind of surprise moments for us so far was when Judge McBurney ruled that Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and her entire office was disqualified from investigating Burt Jones because of that fundraiser that he held for Charlie Bailey. That was such a rare misstep from her. We really did not see, you know, she was very methodical in the way that she'd kind of gone about things until that moment. You've followed Fonnie Willis for a long time. You followed the Fulton DA's office for a really long time. What did you make of all of that. And what do you make of the work that she's done so far on this case, but just kind of more broadly since she's been elected?
3: Well, the uh, the fundraiser that she held for Charlie Bailey, who at the time was the running in the Democratic primary, was, I guess, what you call in baseball an, an unforced error. She just, it, it, what was she thinking? And that is exactly what Judge McBurney said, uh, "Judge McBurney, he's he's kind of a uh, a, a quirky fellow. He's a, a former prosecutor. He kind of beats to his own drummer, and uh, I think he handled it well. I mean, I think he handled the he, he surgically removed that part of the case that I think, in essence, ended up doing her a favor. I, I mean, that it, it became a talking point for Republicans." But now, uh, you know, she and others can just say that part of it is gone and that part of the case is gone and it doesn't matter for what she does. I think she's she's done a, a good job just unfolding this case uh, as uh, in a, the concentric circles uh, thought is is a good image because it, she is just kind of squeezing the vice a little bit more and more. As far as her job so far overall, uh, I, I think she's, she's done a good job. I mean, she, she is, uh, very public about what she's doing. I think she has, uh, uh, two Rico cases, uh, going large, uh, ca- uh sprawling racketeering cases that have dozens of defendants against gangs and rappers. And, uh, she has gone against the another uh, uh, thing of carjack, a case of carjackers and uh, home invaders. You know, so she looks tough on crime. I mean, and you know her pretty well, Bill, from the Atlanta Public Schools cheating case. So she's kind of covering all the bases, as I say in my column. As she's gone against uh, uh, everybody uh, from rappers to Republicans. So and, and she kind of covers all the bases.
1: This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
2: Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com.
0: Patricia, can I ask you, who are the most prominent election deniers running in the GOP primary in November? And overall, how would you say they've done this election cycle?
6: Well, you know, the we had an entire collection of election deniers at the beginning of the year. And many of them were running in GOP primaries against incumbents in Georgia, uh, incumbent Republicans who stood up for the election. And so Brad Raffensperger had what we didn't know, would this be a strong primary, a weak primary, Former President Donald Trump tried to run an election denier against every Republican on the statewide ballot and didn't have a great result. So, Governor Brian Kemp ran against David Perdue, former senator, who never in the moment said this election was rigged and stolen, but certainly worked to undermine the election. And by the end of that campaign, he was out there on the trail com- you know, declaring this election was rigged and stolen. David Perdue lost by more than 50 points to Governor Kemp in the primary. The two exceptions were Burt Jones, who, again, never did say this election was rigged and stolen, but he did repeatedly say, Well, I have a lot of questions about that election. I'm just not exactly sure if that was fair and square. He also did serve as a fake elector. He also did help to bring in Rudy Giuliani as a witness before a state Senate subcommittee, which ended up being just sort of a a three ring circus. So he was at the center of all of the apparatus to undermine that election. Burt Jones also has millions of dollars of his own money and was able to spend heavily against his own opponent in that GP primary. So he won. Herschel Walker also was running uh, in a very high profile race against uh, Senator Raphael Warnock. And he, of course, won his election, his GOP primary. He, in the days after the 2020 election, he's always been very close with Donald Trump and in those days was tweeting consistently about the 2020 election and suggesting maybe Georgia should just vote all over again. This all looks very shady and suspicious. So he also won his GOP primary, but has never come out and said the election was uh, not stolen, was completely fair and square. And I have full confidence in the election apparatus. So they were more denier adjacent. The Republicans who were complete election deniers really didn't fare well in the GOP primary. So I think that shot a real hole in it and uh, took a lot of the momentum out of that side of uh, the Republican Party here in Georgia in the process.
3: They even ran a uh, election denier for commissioner of uh, insurance, which is kind of a, I mean, mean, as you said, they kind of hit all the slots on the ballot. The, uh, the election denier, I mean, it's almost kind of built into the Republican brand now, almost. And As I think I've said before, it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, professional wrestling. Everyone knows the whole idea of election denying is fake. It's BS, but uh, it, to be a Republican, you have to buy in. You have to believe it, it or, you know, pre- uh, uh, state publicly that you believe it. I mean, that's just like I say, when you go to a professional wrestling uh, about no one ever says it's fake. Everyone knows it, but you know everyone cheers and and yells, and you just go along with the whole charade.
6: Yeah, I think also you know statewide the election deniers didn't fare well in the GP primary. District by district, though, they sure did. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene has said consistently, "Donald Trump is my president. He won the election," and she dominated her GOP primary and is going to is you know just very well set up to win re-election as well so there are very strong pockets of election deniers and denialism. I think it infuses the GOP grassroots, especially at those county levels. But uh, statewide, it just didn't do well. Also, the AGs race, there was an election denier. As Bill said, the insurance commissioner was an election denier. That didn't go that well for him either. So I think if those guys had all won their primaries, we would be looking at a really different future for the Republican Party here in the state going forward. But but they didn't. And so we still have Kemp, Raffensburger, and then and then the rest. The I've
3: got a question for you, Patricia, And as far as Raffensburger. I, I remember back uh, last year, a year ago, uh, you know, long before the primary, I thought he was toast. What happened with him that, you know, was him standing up against Trump? A good thing for him in in the Republican primary. It didn't you know. It didn't seem like it would be, but it turned out to be that way.
6: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we all thought that uh, Raffensperger was toast. There were there were no Republicans willing to say I support Brad Raffensperger, even if they did secretly support Brad Raffensperger. It just seemed like he was on a one way road to unemployment. However, I think his Willingness and insistence to stand up for the election helped him with some Republicans. It also helped him a lot with Democrats. And so in the GOP primary here in the state in Georgia, you don't register by party obviously. So you can, anybody can vote in either primary. So we saw an important number of Democrats cross over to vote in the GOP primary in 2022. And those Democrats voted for Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Now, it was not the majority of either of their votes, but it was an important number for them to really expand their margins there. And for Raffensperger, going into November, he is pulling ahead of any other Republicans in terms of the spread that he has with his opponent. He's running against a woman named B. Wynn, who is a state representative here in Georgia, a Democrat, a huge rising star in her party. But Raffensperger's polling nearly 20 points ahead of her right now. And that is fueled by that Democratic crossover support. And Greg Bluestein and I, my colleague, we both spoke with a number of Democrats who had voted in that GOP primary, and Democrats were saying, listen, Brad Raffensperger did the only thing I wanted him to do, which was to stand up against Donald Trump in a, an election that Donald Trump lost, and it was somebody in his own party who stood up to him and said, no, you didn't, and said it over and over and over. And so some Democrats are absolutely going to vote for Brad Raffensburger in November because of that.
0: In the general election, you can vote any party.
6: of course. Yes, that
0: makes all the difference for him now.
1: Patricia, I want to ask you about Governor Kemp and the political calculations for him when it comes to this investigation. He fought his subpoena to come testify, and that came after a pretty testy back and forth between his counsel and the DA's office. Judge McBurney said the governor must testify, but that it could wait until after the elections. So as the governor focuses on defeating Stacey Abrams in November, How much does it help him to fight his subpoena publicly? In theory, it's a general election audience. He'll want to appeal more to the political middle. But Fulton prosecutors during the hearing with McBurney said they didn't know why the governor was making this a public fight, that he could have come in and quietly testified and no one would have known.
6: Well, I think it's a really great question. And Bill had mentioned that McBurney has tried to keep this as apolitical as possible. I think. McBurney's decision to delay Kemp's testimony until after his reelection was another example of that, of him saying, listen, you are going to have to come in and testify, but you don't have to do it before your race. And I agree with you. For all of us, for for anything that we knew, this was going very smoothly behind the scenes. We did expect Governor Kemp to testify over video. There had been an announcement that Kemp would not have to come in. He didn't have to go up the courthouse steps. He's certainly not considered a target in this investigation, but we believed he would testify. We had a specific date he was supposed to testify, and we never heard that he hadn't testified on that day until weeks later when this very strange, uh, it also looked like kind of an interstaff fight between an assistant DA and an aide to Governor Kemp Really, just spilled out into the open, and it was from a statement from Kemp's office. And Kemp, basically calling the entire investigation politically motivated, just shocked all of us because he didn't have to issue that statement. And uh, to your point, if he had some, if he had testified over video, nobody would have known any of this. Um, but I think the political calculations for Kemp are very delicate. I think that he obviously did win his GOP primary by a huge margin. But he needs every Donald Trump supporter to come back out to the polls in November. He cannot afford to alienate this huge swath of the Republican base in the process of also getting elected. And we know that because... David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler both lost their races in 2021 because a significant number of Trump supporters stayed home in that GOP primary because Donald Trump told them that that election was also not going to be reliable and that Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue had not fought hard enough for him. And so um, you go into the most conservative districts in Georgia and look at the turnout there. There was a meaningful drop-off in GOP votes in that Senate race and that cost those two GOP senators their jobs. And uh, the Kemp team knows that. So they don't want to antagonize the Trump base. They also don't want to antagonize any moderates or Democrats who might want to vote for Governor Kemp on election day. Um, So it's just this very narrow line. Behind the scenes, we were hearing from Kemp's people that they do consider this politically motivated, that they don't see this as fair and square, and that they wanted to make that well known as this this back and forth was going on for months and months, it turned out, you know, we learned through that process. So I think having it delayed helps Kemp a lot. It just sort of takes this issue off the table for him, he can go ahead and deal with the other issues that he has more control over, and uh, deal with those things going into election day, continue to talk about what he wants to talk about, which is the economy. It is definitely not Donald Trump. He does not even want to really be campaigning with Donald Trump. He doesn't want to talk about Donald Trump. He wants to talk about his own race. He wants to talk about the Georgia economy and the things that he's proud of. And this investigation is about number 10 million of the things he would like to discuss before November 8th here in Georgia.
0: Hey, Bill, let me ask you this. So Trump and social media posts lately has been putting Atlanta's homicide numbers up and comparing them to other cities. So a frequent criticism, we've heard about the investigation. There are simply too many other pressing issues that Fani must take care of, including violent crime and the COVID case backlog. What, what do you make of that?
3: Um, no, it's a good argument. Uh, I mean, it always is a good argument when you beat up on a, a prosecutor for not going after murder cases. She is going after murder cases. There have been a lot of them. I think the city had 159. City of Atlanta um, is largely in Fulton County, and then there's other places that are in Fulton County also. uh, But Atlanta, of course, is is Fondi's biggest customer. But I think there's like about 300 employees in our office, and I think they've said, you know, in, in response to that argument, that maybe 15 of them, maybe 20, depends on how, you know, how active the Trump case is that week or that month. But uh, it's a small percentage of employees that are on there. So I guess she can chew gum and and walk at the same time. But uh, as I said at first, I mean, you know that that's going to be an argument and it sounds good when they say it.
1: But Bill, this is something that we've heard even from Democrats who would be likely to support Fannie Willis. They talk about all the other pressing issues in Fulton County, crime, but also just clearing the COVID case backlog, which is like tens of thousands of cases. The DA isn't up for re-election until 2024. But I'm wondering if you think that there is a real political risk for her if she's seen as not kind of tending to those other issues in her backyard. Do you think there's a possibility for a primary opponent
3: Nah, not a chance. Now, it's really, first thing, it's hard to beat a a sitting DA, although in 2020, a lot of sitting DAs did lose. Most of those, I think, were kind of, uh, some of them were demographic uh, changes in the counties. But I mean, Bill and I covered the Ray Lewis case. Uh, Paul Howard, the former district attorney, very good courtroom lawyer, he came in and just got his butt handed to him uh, in that case it was just a train wreck and then he won his election like 6 months later so it was 2024 is a long ways away and fani just would have a hard time getting beat i mean she would have to do a lot of stupid things between then and now and i don't think she's i don't think she's up to the task of doing that many stupid things in that time period
1: Patricia, one of the most interesting columns that you've written about Fannie Willis, in my opinion, was about her work outside of the Fulton investigation and how she's been able to actually build some alliances with Republican state legislators working on issues like human trafficking, on crime, issues like that. Can you tell us a little bit about that and whether you think the state of this investigation and how it's increasingly been seen as political in Republican circles, if that threatens those relationships?
6: Yeah, so Bonnie Willis, in the 2022 legislative session, so that was at the beginning of this year from January until about mid-March, was what I would call a frequent flyer at the session. We saw her a lot. She was testifying, um, not just in committee hearings, but also subcommittee hearings. And those are Republican-led hearings and uh, committees, of course, because the GOP leads the General Assembly in both houses here in Georgia. And uh, she was... Really simpatico with a lot of those committee chairmen, the Republican committee chairman, because she would go in and say, listen, we have a huge crime problem. And there are a number of, I would say, more progressive Democrats around the state who would say, we have a crime problem, but we also have a policing problem. Funny Willis would go in and say, we have a crime problem. We have a gang problem. I need more money to do my job. And here are all the ways that we have a crime problem. And she would say, especially in Fulton County, and uh, for a sitting Democratic DA to sort of echo back to the chairman, what they have been saying for years, that you have a huge crime problem in Fulton County. They were, I would say, pleasantly surprised and very refreshed to have a DA come in and say, hey, we are on the same page. We're fighting the same fight. And I need your resources or else I'm not going to be able to reduce crime. And it's going to be your fault, not mine. Guess what? And so um, she had committee chairman saying, Thank you so much for your candor, Miss Willis. D.A. Willis, I think we're on the same team. And this was going on for months and months and months. And she did get a good bit of additional funding. And this was specifically for a crime task force that she's working on. She also has a real focus on human trafficking. It's obviously a problem statewide, major problem in Fulton County. And so she wanted to devote more resources to that. That is exactly what the Republicans wanted to spend money on anyway. And so uh, she did... A press conference at the end of the session with the Republican chairman of uh, the Judiciary Subcommittee that kind of works to spend money on this, and so side by side together of them, they both said, "We are so pleased we can work together on this issue. Thank you for your help, sir and madam." You know, it was a very unusual in the in the <laughs> Georgia journals. Let me to, to to see this. Um, I think going forward, this Trump investigation, it really started to really ramp up after the session ended. And it has taken on a significant um, kind of political overtone and undertone, particularly with Kemp coming out and saying this is totally politically motivated. So I do think that it really tests those relationships. At the end of the day, she still is in contact with these chairmen and still saying, we are still working on gangs. We're still working on all of these other issues that you and I share. Um, But yeah, I think, of course, it tests those relationships. Absolutely.
3: To follow up on that, uh, she can do two things at once, like I said, and going after Donald Trump in Fulton County is not bad politically, right? And uh, so, you know, she can be tough on, you know, gangs and crime, and she does well. I mean, she actually, in the press conferences, she projects a sense of, uh, of uh, as I've called it, badassery. Uh, she is uh, very, you know, I won't stand down. I'm, you know, right here. She had a press conference with like 20 chiefs of police and FBI agents and whatever behind her. And she was the only one that talked. I hadn't seen that before. Usually they trot out the ATF guy to say, you know, a couple of things, but it was funny, all funny, all the way.
1: At the same time, Bill, you know, you talk about how it probably won't hurt her in Fulton County, which you're right, voted for Joe Biden by something like 72 percent of the vote in 2020. At the same time, we have heard some rumblings about a recall effort kind of modeled off the successful campaign in San Francisco. Do you see any chance that that could be successful or at the very least place some seeds of doubt in the eyes of some Republicans and moderates?
3: Nah. I mean, you know, you could do anything these days, as it turns out. But, uh, you know, it is a bizarro world of politics, but that would have really, it would just be an exercise in futility.
6: Yeah, I think tomorrow, so obviously, there's conservative voters who live in North Fulton County. So it's not a completely Democratic district, although it's heavily a Democratic county. But Fannie Willis has this mantra that she repeats over and over. And she says, I am going to prosecute crimes in Fulton County, and I don't care who's committing the crime. I don't care if you're the former president of the United States. I don't care if you're a rapper. I don't care if you're a teacher. I don't care if you're living on the streets. I'm going to prosecute a crime. If I see it, I'm obligated to do that. And I think in a way, the way she's going about all of these prosecutions sort of lives that mantra out. I mean, she's proving it. I would say it's harder in Fulton County to go after rappers than it is to go after the former president. I think there's a lot more political peril in looking like she is focusing on this group of very prominent, very in some circles, very popular rap singers and rap stars who are sort of beloved and lionized by parts of the community. That's harder than going after the president. So I think all of these together sort of Prove that mantra. If you're doing it, I'm coming after you for it, no matter who you are.
0: So, Tamara and I've been living this now for months, and y'all been looking at it from afar. So, how how do y'all see this investigation going? Where do you see it going?
3: Well, it's uh, um, that's interesting. I mean, it a lot of people uh, I've heard uh, people say that you know they know that uh, it would almost be impossible to convict. Donald Trump but uh, there's a lot of people who wouldn't mind seeing his mugshot and I ultimately think that they will I don't think they'll subpoena him but they will uh, to to come in but they will give him an invitation to uh, testify he'd be an idiot to do it but and you guys know this better than I do but it it would just uh, you know it's it would take away his talking point that, uh, uh, you know, they didn't give me a chance to speak. I, as far as will they indict Donald Trump or not indict, that, of course, is the $64,000 question. Uh, my thought is they will. Uh, I mean, you you can indict, uh, as they say, a, a ham sandwich. And, you know, he's the whole pork roast, you know. So he. I think that they will uh, step back a little bit. Uh, I don't think that she would then try to just do what sometimes in a uh, grand jury, you just give the prosecution side. I think she would, if they want to really be serious about if they're going to indict her or not, they lay out pretty much the whole case, uh, uh, that uh, even the stuff that is would sort of exonerate him and let the grand jury make a decision because you, you don't want to get run out of court after indictment with a really weak case. And so I think that's what they would have to do.
6: Yeah, I feel like to Bill's point, I think it's going to be part of a this vast conspiracy that she's laying out. I mean, we see her focusing not just on that Donald Trump call. So he's literally on tape pressuring <laughs> the Secretary of State to find him 11,000 votes. I mean, in any courtroom You know, you'd probably at least get 50-50 to say that that's election interference on its own. But I think it will absolutely be part of this broader conspiracy. And if she can, you know, as you'll say every time on, uh, or as you have her saying every time on Breakdown, if she can prove fact A, fact B, and fact C, she will bring an indictment, you know, but I think it will include... A lot of people. I think it would also include potentially some of the fake electors, potentially people in Coffee County, potentially people who worked for him on the Trump campaign. I don't think it would be just Donald Trump who gets indicted. But if all of those other people get indicted, I don't see how she doesn't bring it against him as well.
0: Thank y'all so much. Before we go, we need to set the record straight on one thing from last week's episode. Rico expert Jeff Grell from Minneapolis said, correctly, that under federal law, a pattern of racketeering activity must go on for quite some time, even at least two years in duration. But we've since learned that under Georgia law, the pattern does not necessarily have to be that long at all. It can be of much shorter duration. Just want to clarify that, and we've gone back and changed that passage in episode 13.
1: We'll be back next Tuesday. As always, thanks so very much for listening. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com, and if you really want to support local journalism, particularly our journalism, please subscribe to the AJC.
0: We can't do this without you. Thanks so much. Breakdown Sound Engineer is Shane Backler. Our Podcast Program Manager is Jay Black. Thanks again to Bill Torpey, Patricia Murphy, Pete Corson, and the AJC's editor, Kevin Ryle. Be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin.
1: And I'm Tamar Hallerman. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
2: Ocean Breeze. Tropical Beach. Pina Colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on.
4: The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell,
0: and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's
3: Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.